Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's chilly out there. It's going to get up maybe into the 50s, 60s. But um, no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always hot conversation here on 94 WIP. And when we come back in just a minute, we're going to be talking with author, university president, Mark Zupin. He is president of Alfred University up there in New York. And he's got a new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Donald Trump promised to drain the swamp of these government insiders. How successful has he been? We're going to ask that and other questions of Mark Zupin when we come back after these messages. The WIP Time, 601. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon here on 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Mark Zupin. President of Alfred University, sits on many profit and nonprofit boards of directors, and now is author, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Good morning, Mark Zupin. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Okay, now, Mark, when Donald Trump campaigned and was elected, he promised to drain the swamp of these very government insiders you write about. How successful has he been? It's still early on, but that'll be a key litmus test of his administration. Um, What's interesting, what drove the success of Trump, as well as Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party, is a mistrust of government. The Pew Research Center that's been doing an annual survey since the 60s um, reports that the the percentage of uh, survey respondents that in any given year will say we trust government all the time or most of the time is at an all-time low. The high point was in 1966 when 77% of Americans responding to the survey said we trust government all the time or most of the time. Uh, The low is the most recent survey, and it's 19%. Um, It's lower than it was during the Watergate era. So that's had the rise of Donald Trump. That's had the rise of Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. Uh, how it actually plays out, uh, the biggest, uh, when we look at uh, how, to what extent uh, politicians are rated favorably, it's to what extent they can end up uh, promoting productivity, the success uh, of the general nation. Uh, it's the Carville comment during the Clinton administration, it's, a, it's the economy stupid. So a lot of it will depend to what extent uh, uh, Donald Trump can get the economy going at a healthier clip. Why do you think distrust is at an all-time low? I think in terms of uh, seeing outcomes, uh, whether it's educational outcomes at the state and local level, whether when people evaluate uh, how much money gets spent on government across, uh, and this is a phenomenon across developed nations now across uh, the developed uh, world, uh, government outlays account for over 50% of GDP employments over 25%, and uh, people asking the fundamental question, are we getting the the results that we want? Uh, Steve Ballmer just about a week ago launched uh, or announced uh, one of his latest ventures to actually track in the United States the effectiveness of U.S. dollars, and he was surprised that there isn't greater transparency, and so there's this general question of uh, what am I getting for the dollars we're putting in? But then one has to answer the, ask the question, whose fault is it? 
Um, I think uh, both parties are complicit in this, and uh, uh, when you look at uh, even, let's say, in the, the federal government before the uh, Stock Act to stop trading on congressional knowledge that was passed in 2012, the leading studies that were done of the 15 years prior to that across both Democratic and Republican parties, the finding was that the average senator's portfolio, um, he or she did 12 percentage points better per year than the market. The average congressional rep over that same 15-year time period did six percentage points better. So we were electing people to Congress, both the Republicans and Democrats, who um, were doing better than Warren Buffett. So either they're incredibly prescient or there's something about the role in Washington that they play in their access to knowledge and ability to shape policy outcomes that redounds to their benefit, but not necessarily to the uh, broader public's benefit. What about all this and the issue that you to write the book? It goes back um, over 30 years uh, when I was um, uh, a graduate student and, and even an undergrad uh, was starting to look at, uh, in a well-established democracy like the United States, to what extent uh, could we explain how um, our elected representatives behaved? I'm an economist, and the economic model of politics, economists have, will view um, the politics as a market that on the, the product that's being produced and sold is wealth transfers. On the demand side of this market are interest groups that want favorable policies so that to work toward improving uh, their bottom line. And on the supply side are the folks we elect um, that operate inside government that produce those policy transfers because they can write the laws and enforce the laws. And so we, we went about testing this model on specific issues like strip mining, coal strip mining legislation. And um, we did find a relationship between pocketbook interests on the demand side, whether it was consumers of coal, producers of coal, uh, alternative energy sources, environmentalists. But what amazed us was how little explanatory power in the grand scheme of things uh, those demand side interests provided for how senators voted on strip mining legislation. The more we delved into it, it appeared that the ideological interests of the senators played a much um, more important role. And it was amazing to us to what extent you could predict how a senator would vote on strip mining legislation based on his or her voting on abortion legislation. So that led us to, well, maybe on a specific issue on coal strip mining, there isn't this capture of the political process by demand-side interests. There's still a lot of slack in the system for uh, suppliers on the, in the political marketplace to exercise their discretion and, and vote their or, uh, promote their ideological preferences. But maybe what happens is when we elect these senators, uh, when the market meets every six years, uh, maybe we're at that time selecting the right bundles that on any given issue will on net benefit as, as well as possible. And when we even looked at uh, the market for senators at election time, it was uh, striking to what extent, to what little extent we could explain it based on socioeconomic characteristics of a state, that there still seemed to be, even at a general election time, a considerable latitude on how um, 
what senators got to do once put in office. And, and so that, that was the, um, uh, the genesis of the idea, and it, it's been percolating for the past three decades and had a sabbatical in between a deanship at the University of Rochester, Simon Business School, and the presidency at Alfred University that finally allowed me to, the time to, to write this book. Okay. If insiders are a problem, can you run government without insiders? I mean, because as I understand how you define insider, it's not only the lobbyists and the special interest representatives that are part of the problem, but it's also the people on the supply side as well. That's exactly right. When things have gone awry, uh, economists have typically pointed to capture from the demand side. And uh, when this model was first introduced uh, by an individual, George Stigler, at the University of Chicago, very, he came to a similar conclusion to Karl Marx, uh, so uh, more um, uh, quite conservative economists agreeing with uh, uh, with somebody like Karl Marx that what happened was that the system would get co-opted from the demand side, and in particular by producers or by capitalists, because they had more concentrated ability, the ability to lobby effectively. But then people started looking at outcomes, and there were certain outpulled political outcomes you could explain by producers seeming to be the dominant interest group. But then there were others where consumer interests or environmental interests uh, were predominant uh, or the likely explanation. And um, so the model got expanded to allow for various groups, whether it's consumers or elites or one percenters to co-opt the system. But what was interesting is how little attention was placed on the people producing the legislation or writing the rules that individuals in uh, the civil service and the bureaucracy are elected representatives. The economic model of politics has grown up the last 50 years. Had we looked back in time uh, where autocracy was much more the norm 200 years ago and, and further back in history, we would have probably viewed the, um, the marketplace uh, more uh, generally, and to admit that uh, it was probably suppliers that uh, of uh, policies that could do the most damage. That somebody like a Louis the Fourteenth could say, "The state is me." Uh, that it was assumed during the time where autocracies were the norm that the, the monarchs, uh, the folks on the supply side, the, their bureaucracies, their military, uh, ran the state to their advantage at the expense of the general citizenry. Okay. I'm not sure I'm grasping on this, so help me. Give me an ex- can you give me a specific example? Um, let's say, um, uh, and uh, Donald, uh, sorry, Paul Kennedy, uh, 30 years ago, wrote this uh, wonderful book, um, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And he asked the question, if we went back to the 1400s and wanted to predict what nations would be the dominant ones today, uh, hands down, historians running that exercise would say it was the Ottoman Empire and it was uh, China. And when you look at his analysis, why both those powerful nation states in the 1400s uh, lost their position of preeminence, it was because of folks on the inside of government. Uh, it wasn't uh, demand side uh, special interests. In the case of the Ottoman Empire, um, it was, um, and it also illustrates how sometimes we set up institutions that may do good for a while, but then 
contain within them the seeds of um, of a nation state's own decay. They had to develop in the Ottoman Empire a fighting force, and uh, they wanted to promote a meritocracy. So the ingenious solution they came up with, uh, they called them the Anisaries. They would scour the lands they were conquering for the most able-bodied Christian youth and um, take them in chains back to Istanbul, uh, train them, and it was a one-generation um, meritocracy. Uh, so and they were a feared fighting force. They allowed the Ottoman Empire to continue to expand. But once they established themselves as a powerful force within the government, uh, then uh, the seeds of the decay ended up kicking in for the Ottoman Empire. The Janissaries lobbied and obtained uh, a reduction in the one-generation rule that uh, if I'm a Janissary, my son can be a Janissary too, uh, argued more effectively for political power for more benefits. Uh, two sultans were murdered by the Janissaries trying to reform the institution. They, they started to exercise a chokehold. They were a key reason why the um, Ottoman Empire became the sick person of Europe. Another, another supply-side institution were the public scribes in the Ottoman Empire, as well as the Sultan, uh, how succession planning worked, um, and the fear that um, too much knowledge uh, would be to the detriment of the ruling class inside the government on the supply side. Um, a sultan in 1485 outlawed the use of printing press. So an empire that had been at the peak, when you looked at comparable, had uh, uh, three times the population of Spain, six times the population of Great Britain at the time, had the fabulous um, uh, educational institutions, scientific, uh, mathematical advances. For 250 years, there was not a single printing press in the Ottoman Empire, and that was due both to the sultan's fear of uh, knowledge spreading, but also the public scribes, a, a very extensive uh, group of bureaucrats on the supply side of politics that, uh, that were worried that their livelihood would get threatened if the printing press was introduced. A key reason on the supply side why the Ottoman Empire declined. In the Ming dynasty in China, similar from being at the peak, having greater population, iron production, canals, paper money, movable type, uh, substantially ahead of uh, Western Europe, there became a fear from the supply side of exploration, of trade, of, uh, of enterprise in general. And it was both the emperors and the individuals that served the emperors and the Chinese bureaucracy that uh, ground that uh, uh, fabled empire to a halt. Okay. But again, I come back to my other question of, can you run a government without insiders? I mean, Donald Trump's... You can't. Come... Exactly. Yeah, you, you can't. And this, this is uh, an age-old dilemma. Our founders looked uh, historically largely at autocracies, but also some examples of democracies. And there's this very famous line in the Federalist Papers, Federalist Number 51, where Madison says, our objective needs to be to set up a government that control, can control the government, the government, that we need an effective state, in, in essence. But then, as soon as we do that, we've got to figure out how to have the government control itself, what kind of checks and balances, and this has been an age-old dilemma. And, and one of the uh, positive findings from the book is, 
we should be optimistic about in the grand course over the grand course of time democracy on average is an improvement over autocracy when you look at uh, public sector integrity measures we should be cheered by that uh, democracy was basically not around uh, 200 years ago and now is on it continues to be on the march although in fits and starts there, there have been downward cycles in the 30s um, downward cycles post World War II, but uh, we should we should be cheered by that on on average it's an improvement. On the negative side, um, we can't rest with just the establishment and the further promotion of democracy. The democracy uh, by the people uh, doesn't guarantee government for the people. If it doesn't guarantee government for the people, what does? Uh, what other checks and balances um, we need to give consideration um, will further promote uh, public sector integrity, um, will further promote uh, trust in government. And um, uh, just the advents, we should also be cheered by the advents, uh, the advent of uh, benchmarking of social media that allow us to judge how is our government doing relative to um, other uh, other governments. Um, so, and this was one of the gifts our founders gave us: um, uh, a representative democracy. The belief that if you <clears throat> could run different experiments in the state of Pennsylvania, in the state of New York, and what worked in a particular government service or didn't, other subdivisions could learn from that. That uh, a key reason why China started to liberalize under Deng was looking at how far Japan had gone, how far Singapore had come. Uh, and it's this old Mark Twain quote, there's nothing so annoying is a good example. Um, a key reason why India started to liberalize was looking at how Pakistan next door uh, was um, advancing more quickly economically than India was and had been for several decades. So benchmarking ways to keep track, uh, my book relies on Transparency International scores. Uh, this is an organization that's been around since 1995, annually measures the public sector integrity of different uh, countries around the globe, and it's a compendium of surveys. Uh, uh, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, a leading business school in Switzerland that uh, take uh, in individually surveys and Transparency International compiles them and. Uh, it's, uh, I believe, also a force for good in allowing citizens to track how's my country doing relative to another country. Um, Steve Ballmer's efforts are to be applauded, too. And then we have to look, too, to what extent we allow monopolization to occur on the supply side of politics. And, the, and these are questions, whether it's in the state of Wisconsin or elsewhere, uh, should we facilitate or even allow public sector unions, and to what extent does that lead um, when you when you look at uh, what uh, portion of the Philadelphia budget nowadays goes to uh, you cover uh, pensions of public sector workers that over the last uh, 50 years have become more unionized across the country and uh, should we institute more checks and balances because just as we have to worry about unions in the private sector marketplace we also have to uh, ask those same questions in the, in the public sector. But do you offer us any answers or just lots of questions? Uh, no. As an economist, um, you want to be skeptical of um, uh, any institution that insulates uh, individuals in power, whether they're monarchs or in other positions, lower 
uh, in government, uh, that the more people hold those positions for life, uh, we're less likely to get uh, positive outcomes. In my own state of New York, we've lost our number two and our number three um, uh, elect, top elected officials over the past couple of years, one a Democrat, one a Republican, one in the Assembly, one in the State Senate. And um, the malfeasance that was at the heart of them getting booted, uh, you could, I would argue, directly tie to how, much, how long they'd been in office, how much power that they had accumulated, and the insulation that came with that power. But at the same time, if you elect somebody, whether it's a congressperson, a senator, a governor, whoever, and they're in office for a long time, don't they have a chance to build up relationships? Don't they have a chance to have a knowledge base that can only benefit the people? Uh, there is, uh, and that's the, the trade-off in, in why economists tend to be portrayed as on the one hand this and on the other hand that. So th- that's the trade-off but would still argue that term limits are fair game, that uh, there is something about uh, getting a a fresh set of eyes and a a fresh approach to a situation that uh, there is knowledge, there are relationships that come, but as those relationships get built, uh, there is uh, the uh, encrustation of individuals in their office that has untoward um, outcomes that, uh, that come with that insulation in office that we need to be thinking about. And you're listening to 94 WIP All Sports Radio. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Mark Zupin, president of Alfred University, author the book Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. We'll be right back after these messages. With Mark Zupin, author, university president, his new book, Inside Job, how government insiders subvert the public interest. All right, but Mark, if we take what you're saying and the danger of insiders hanging in there, and we look at the Trump administration, which Sam doesn't seem to get anything passed that doesn't come by presidential proclamation, that um, they've put in a whole bunch of cabinet people, a lot of whom people would say don't know what they're doing, and a whole bunch of federal jobs left unfilled right now. What do we have except a big mess? Um, in the end, it'll still um, the administration will be judged. To your point, Peter, by its actual effectiveness. Issuing orders is one thing. Uh, producing results, uh, whether it's economic prosperity or the promotion of civil liberties. Um, It's long been a part of the secret sauce of the United States, so we've been more open to um, ideas to uh, trade and across borders. Uh, So the litmus test will be how the performance actually stacks up over time. Okay. Then when we look at Congress and the committee system, which which I I would say makes Congress run, because what gets done really gets done in committee to a large extent. Does that help or hurt? Um, on that, it helps because the work that has to be done uh, so people develop that specialized knowledge, have the responsibility, the ownership uh, to produce results. But it, then we, in the broader scheme of things, we have to also question how the size of the government and the outcomes we're getting. Uh, and to that point, um, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, an economist out of Illinois, 
uh, runs this hypothetical question for us. She says, look, most of us would agree that government should promote um, progressive income taxation so that we help individuals that are lower in, on the income scale. And so let's say we took a quarter of what the federal government currently takes. So a quarter would amount to $1 trillion roughly a year. And she says, look, most of us would agree that let's steer that quarter toward individuals below the poverty line. If we did that, the actual outcome should end up being that the average family of four below the poverty line would earn $110,000 a year. The fact that it doesn't happen should lead us to question what actually, how the political process, even whether it's an autocracy or democracy, how it ends up operating, that the outcomes don't end up uh, promoting the advancement of those um, who need the support the most, but uh, get co-opted, whether it's from the demand side or the supply side. And a key thing, uh, when you have um, a cancer a cell over-replication, um, the DNA code gets uh, warped. And an analogy I use in the book, uh, which is, came out on Amazon, um, or is available on Amazon a couple weeks ago, um, a key point is that uh, often capture is symbiotic by both the demand side and the supply side in representative democracies. And it's um, like the code and DNA, there are four bases. And uh, what's interesting about the bases is uh, adenine always bonds with thymine and cytosine with guanine. So if something gets corrupted on the demand side, we should also expect uh, a similar corruption on the supply side that will keep that policy in place. And a, a classic example that economists can point to is sugar import quotas. The average uh, family in the United States is about $50 worse off a year because we put quotas uh, against importing sugar. Um, and on net as a country, we lose, the estimates are anything from $500 million a year to a billion a year. Uh, that's how much consumers as a group are worse off. Uh, than what producers, because there are certain spots in the U.S. like Louisiana and Hawaii that can produce sugar. Most of the U.S. can't. Uh, so we block sugar imports. We shoot ourselves in the foot to the tune of $500 million to a $1 billion. And what drives that outcome is capture on both sides. There are uh, sugar interests in states like Louisiana and uh, Hawaii that uh, have more at stake, have an incentive, uh, and the means to show up in Washington, uh, the average family losing $50, uh, we're not going to spend the time or go fly to Washington to lobby on behalf of getting rid of the quotas. Uh, but the producers uh, do have an interest on the demand side. And on the supply side, the representatives that support those districts also uh, have an interest in uh, promoting those um, uh, those interests. So we get a double lock that keeps that policy in place, even though it's shooting the country uh, in the foot. So if I understand what you're saying then, your book doesn't provide any answers. It just asks a whole lot of questions. On one hand, we have this. On one other hand, we have that. And we have decisions to make. Um, the last chapter actually deals with the answers and moving us uh, along those lines. And uh, how do we ensure a more perfect union? How do we um, not be satisfied with government by the people and uh, go further toward promoting government for the people. And there are certain um, um, uh, mechanisms that would argue will help advance that. 
One is we want to promote uh, more competition wherever possible on the supply side, that uh, we always have to be looking at the politics and not just the economics, that creating ever larger school districts. Um, in the last 30 years, the number of school districts across the United States has declined by 80%. And um, while there have been economies of scale reasons uh, uh, that have justified that, promoting greater integration, so some very well-intentioned reasons, but it's created larger monopolies on the supply side in the case of Taliban market uh, in, across the United States. Limiting offices for life uh, will argue that we need to look more closely at, at term limits and not lock in people on the supply side. How do we curtail uh, supply-side monopolies? But, uh, these are questions I believe we have to revisit, just like we have antitrust laws uh, for private markets that limit one firm or a few firms uh, having too much power and that we need to think of similar rules in, in the public sector that institutional forms and rules matter, that uh, when we look at uh, across countries and political scientists look, do you get better outcomes in uh, presidential um, or parliamentarian systems? And you tend to get larger government and parliamentarian systems than you do in presidential systems. There are fewer checks and balances. Uh, there's an analog whether you have a city manager or you have a mayor um, elected council, and greater checks and balances uh, tend to help. Uh, facilitating benchmarking, uh, what we discussed earlier, how do you provide examples uh, that, uh, and how, to, how does technology and media help you do that benchmarking? And even uh, thinking about the possibility of buyouts and what we see in the private sector marketplace is uh, a firm strategies aren't working, uh, we'll, we'll um, see sometimes these uh, golden parachutes or golden handshakes where you can, and the, and the payments seem unseemly but they allow a new management to come in and test out their own strategies. Those are much harder to promote in the public sector marketplace because power is the realm of politics. And once you lose power, you lose the ability to define the rules. And so anything that's promised to you, uh, you look at a Louis XVI and a Marie Antoinette, the promises they got for ceding power and how those promises weren't kept. So people tend to cling to power uh, in politics, and uh, uh, you end up uh, uh, with people that stay in power as a result of the detriment to the public interest. And, and But should we think about even uh, when we look at something like North Korea nowadays, um, are there any ways uh, how much uh, danger the Kim family and the, la the latest generation uh, may cause the world? Is there any way to um, essentially buy them out um, at less cost than the damage they may potentially do? And you're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. More with Mark Zupin, author of the Inside, author of Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest in Just a Bit. The WIP Time, 636. We're back and into the home stretch with Dr. Mark Zupin, Ph.D., president of Alfred University up there in New York, and now author of the new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's Conversation. All right. If we're going to make the changes that you suggest need to be made, we're essentially asking those in power to give up power, which doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. Uh, 
it's difficult, uh, admittedly, and that's um, when, on the positive side, uh, uh, what the book shows is democracy is an improvement, but um, there are still a lot of autocracies, and even within democracies, there's there's still a lot, a lot of lack in power, and that's the central dilemma of power in the political realm of uh, what kind of checks, further checks and balances to try to uh, keep that uh, encrustation uh, from occurring. Uh, the perverse thing when you look um, uh, across autocracies and democracies, in the private marketplace, if you don't keep producing something that uh, consumers like, um, the firm will wane and you'll go out of business. But uh, across uh, countries of the world, autocracies and autocrats are in power uh, 10 times longer uh, than rulers of democracy. So you get the exact opposite uh, result. And it's precisely, Peter, because of what you pointed out to you. When you can hang on to power in autocracies, people will do that to the detriment of the public interest. And on average, if you wanted to, if you had the ability to design the rules like our founders did, you want to, and they basically argued individuals aren't angels, so we got to figure out what these checks and balances are. And on average, you want to bet on democracy like they did, and they got it right. Uh, the average Transparency International score um, is uh, on a 0 to 100 scale, where 0 is perfectly corrupt, 100 is perfectly clean. The average democracy is 48. Uh, the average autocracy is 33. Uh, you have rare cases like Singapore, Qatar, Botswana that out, uh, outdo democracies when it comes to public sector integrity, but uh, only 10 do better than the average democracy. All that said, to the fundamental point, democracy is not enough. So the checks and balances we have with us today are not sufficient to ensure um, clean government and trust in government. Uh, so we, we have to keep thinking, what else can we do uh, to ensure uh, government for the people? And across countries, uh, over a quarter of democracies currently do worse than the average autocracy. So not just the U.S., but when you worry more broadly, just having government for the people doesn't get us the optimal outcome. Does anybody do it really right, correctly? Um, when you look at um, public sector integrity, the highest scores um, tend to be the Scandinavian nations. Uh, and integrity is one thing, but it's not, the, and one of the other points in the book, integrity is not the same thing as uh, trust in government. So Transparency International measures how clean government is. But even if it's clean, uh, the citizenry still may not trust what the government actually does with the, with the clean money. So how, how um, large the state is, uh, how effectively those dollars uh, are deployed to the ends we want to achieve, integrity doesn't uh, necessarily uh, ensure uh, that there'll be trust. Um, and we shouldn't also look, uh, another uh, sub-point, we shouldn't look at how just competitive the top ranks of government are. Uh, you, you have a case like Italy where uh, it's almost a revolving door. There have been 44 different leaders of Italy since World War II. And yet, uh, on measures of um, how well the country's performing economically, it's had a negative growth rate uh, over the past decade. Um, how the uh, 
with uh, how much public sector integrity there is, how much economic freedom Italy uh, uh, scores surprisingly low relative um, to other countries. So just having a lot of competition and turnover doesn't ensure that what happens below the top rung of power um, is um, is clean. Um, so how much lock-in there is on the, in the public sector in Italy and how hard it is to promote change uh, uh, even though it's a, it's an established democracy at this point. All right. We just elected Mark Zubin president of the country. What changes would you make to make this better? Um, we'd be looking at uh, to what extent we can promote uh, further competition. Uh, let's uh, say we take the case of the Postal Service. I did an op-ed a number of years ago where we happened upon data internal to the Postal Service. And at the time... 10% of the rural routes, uh, or sorry, 10% of um, uh, the work was contracted out. Uh, and we looked at uh, rural routes where they were contracted out. And by the Postal Service's own internal study, what it indicated was where you contracted out or you promoted competition, the cost of delivery was 50% lower. And the quality, as perceived by consumers of that service, was higher. So always being on the lookout of not just trying to do it ourselves. And uh, would ask the question, too, that uh, when you look at uh, K-12 education, um, we've tripled in real terms uh, since the 1970s how much per pupil we're putting into public sector education. Uh, would argue that uh, most individuals will believe uh, we're sacrificing still the next generation, notwithstanding the uh, well-meaning efforts of all the individuals uh, involved in the process. When you look at educational outcomes in my former uh, hometown of Rochester, when you look at how many of the public school systems uh, students uh, are college-ready, uh, SAT scores, uh, end up completing high school on time. Um, th there have been years where it's uh, 40 to 50 percent of entering freshmen end up completing their high school studies, uh, a lower percentage that end up being college ready. So, and and, uh, and these are students that we want to be providing the opportunity through education through leg up, but it's a very um, a large unified school district. Uh, um, it's become uh, very unionized over time. The, the union leader has been there uh, for 30-plus years. So not cre uh, revisiting whether we should be insulating people for life like that because we ultimately want to benefit the next generation, the, the students that are involved. And, and in that district, um, spending has uh, gone up uh, even though the number of pupils have been going down. And you'd argue in that case, too, that... Um, um, the, uh, the flight to the suburbs and uh, the move toward private schools or toward other uh, public systems has been driven by the poor outcomes in the core Rochester Unified School District. And, and that gets mirrored, would argue, in, in other um, locations across the country. Hmm. So you're really telling us is imperfect as democracy is with the question of insiders it's still the best game in town. 
it's still the best, but we shouldn't. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, a famous uh, political theorist, uh, a few years ago on the Berlin Wall fell, wrote an incredibly optimistic book that said, in, entitled The End of History, uh, that democracy was the socioeconomic terminus, and we should be cheered by that. But the fundamental point of my book is um, while we can take heart in the spread of democracy, there's a need to continue to reexamine uh, what other checks and balances. Uh, Grover Cleveland, when he was president, said a public office is a public trust. And yet nowadays that uh, statement, we, we need to be worried about public trust within government. Um, I have a former colleague, Robert Novi Marks at Rochester, who works with uh, Josh Rowlett at Stanford and will argue that uh, unfunded pension liabilities and health care liabilities in state and local government in places like Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, uh, when you total them across the country, there are there are nation's second worst fiscal problem. Uh, they're a bigger challenge than Social Security, uh, not as large as the issues involved with Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, but uh, they total over $5 trillion. And it's not just an isolated incident of uh, Detroit, uh, like Paul Krugman will argue in the New York Times, but we've seen three cities fail already in the state of California. Uh, we see this issue cropping up in Puerto Rico. We see it in the state of Illinois, where the unfunded uh, obligations are 450% as large as the state's annual budget. We see it in Dallas. We see it in Houston. We see it in uh, cities uh, across the state of Pennsylvania, across the state of New York. So this is uh, the political instinct is to kick the can down the road. Uh, you're not going to be in office, but uh, sooner or later we're going to have to pay the piper on this. You're scamming me. Uh, it's a challenge. It's um, the concluding uh, chapter. I used the analogy of uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz that we have the power. We have the red slippers on. And we in democracy have the ability. It's it's not going to be an easy conversation. It uh, is messy. It's it's like the Daniel Day-Lewis um, movie about Abraham Lincoln and the Thirteenth Amendment, where when you look behind the scenes, it, it was not always a pretty picture of how that legislation got passed. Uh, it's going to take some hard conversations, whether it's in Harrisburg or Albany or Washington D.C. We, but we fundamentally have the ability to ensure. Uh, government for the people and a better outcome. For the people. I keep coming back to that phrase, for the people, because for the people, I think, means something different to a one percenter than it does mean to someone on public welfare. Um, and I completely agree. And But looking at the broader polity and uh, the system currently does not deliver when you look at the results for the individuals that are that need the help the most. So thinking through where the um, where the capture occurs and what other checks and balances we can institute to prevent that capture uh, from occurring. Where do you go next, Mark Zupin, in terms of your research and writing? I have been getting uh, quite a few good questions, comments uh, for further research. Uh, but uh, right now in the day job, uh, nine months ago, started as the president of Alfred University, this wonderful uh, school in um, western New York that has this proud progressive heritage, this uh, 
second place to admit women, the first one to open up the full course of studies to them. Uh, has this wonderful tradition of a top uh, school of art and design and a, a top ceramic engineering program and uh, just uh, focused on the, that day job and uh, trying to uh, help uh, as, as a team member with that university. So for the next few years, uh, we'll just focus. And, but, but you learn, too, about uh, the lessons from uh, the book that apply to government also apply within organizations. That uh, Whether you look at Kodak and how it came to its demise um, by um, uh, capture from within uh, by the film interests, uh, whether you look at what's gone on at, uh, in FIFA, recently or the uh, uh, International Olympic Committee. So the, these uh, supply-side capture stories, uh, there have been periods with the Catholic Church. Um, Delphi University had this issue with uh, what a president uh, and the board were doing a number of years ago. So these are issues we have to worry about, not just within government, but within organizations. So to make sure uh, at uh, my home institution of Alfred that we're also learning these lessons of that. how do you promote uh, a positive outcomes on behalf of our university setting. Is that, if I can digress from government to universities, is that where the movement for reducing tuitions at colleges and universities is coming from? No, I think the movement is because uh, tuitions have been going up, at least the list price people, and people tend to focus on what's listed as opposed to what the net tuition when uh, you know, looking at what, what, taking into account the scholarships that universities provide. But the list price has been going up uh, across the country quicker than the rate of inflation. And, and so that's created a, a, a key political plum that gets focused on whether it's Albany or in the recent race for president, the Bernie Sanders proposal, that this will keep cropping up as an issue politically because uh, the, the challenge in the state of New York when we've had this Excelsior program uh, recently that got passed is it hasn't done anything to help individuals below 60000 in family income. It's been targeted more toward the middle or middle upper class. But they tend to vote, um, and tuition has been going up in price, so it's a salient issue. And so that's why it's cropped up um, uh, on the stage in the state of New York. And it will, will argue, we've seen it in Tennessee, a similar Republican governor uh, in that case. So it'll continue to be an issue, just like uh, pharmaceutical drug prices, the rates they've been going up. It creates an opportunity for individuals in politics to try to uh, use policy means as a way to combat it. And I'd like to say thank you to Mark Zubin. Alfred University is sure lucky to have him, and we were lucky to have him this morning as we talked about his new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Thank you, Mark Zubin. Uh, Peter, thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. And this has been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.